Hi folks, how are you? Now, as of recording this, it's quite late. On a Sunday evening, I've just hosted the BAFTA Scotland Awards for the... I've done it a few times. And it's the most joyous celebration of the creative industries in Scotland. And it's not just about Scottish talent. It's about people coming here to film and to work. So it's just the most beautiful celebration. Um, What was great tonight, there was a real kind of mix of things that won. But Charlotte Wells won quite a few for After Sun. She won writer. She won director. Paul Mescal won actor so it was lovely to see the journey for after sun continue so if you haven't yet listened to that episode with charlotte that we did with her then please go and listen to it but this week on the podcast we're really excited because we're bringing you the first um podcast version of a series which we hope will be a very long running kind of addition to soundtracking namely the soundtracking everyman film club which we've launched just to really have a conversation with people about film. So me, you, we get together with people who bring you a film, their film, and we have a wee natter about it either after or maybe before we've watched it. And then we share the conversation with everyone who couldn't be in the room on that day in pod form. On this occasion, it's the wonderful Emerald Fennell talking about the music of Saltburn, which is incredibly important to the movie's narrative drive and an element, as you'll discover, she thinks an enormous amount about. The Q&A is coming up, but as a bonus, I caught up with her composer, Anthony Willis, in an interview you'll get to hear after my conversation with Emerald. But having mentioned Anthony, we're going to begin with one of his cues. Journey to Saltburn. to sing you walking music it's murder on the dance floor there you go (laughs) welcome sorry i told you there's a lot of stairs (laughs) how you doing hi they're all stairs i'm wearing quite a lot of layers (laughs) oh listen um first of all thank you for coming to do this thank you for letting us show your film to this audience who had the most amazing response to this just really lovely hearing your applause at the end of that as well I don't know where to start with. I know we've talked about this before already, but seeing it again, it throws up even more. It's, I was just saying to these guys, it's like the gift that keeps on giving because with every view and you get more or you get something different or it unveils something. Where did the journey for Saltburn start for you? It's always a bit difficult to know <laughs> yeah. when, where something like this springs from, I guess. But certainly, I think for me, the thing that I remember most was a young man who you know turned out to be Oliver saying I wasn't in love with him and then licking the bottom of the bathtub <laughs> and so I thought oh okay well I don't believe you and I'm interested in yeah like, who you are yeah and you know these people kind of come and visit sometimes and either they're kind of either they stay 
yeah. uh, or they're kind of they don't kind of keep your interest. I don't know if anyone else has that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's healthy to recognise it, I think for sure. And it's Thank healthy you. and it's wonderful to have something like that inspire you as well. It's to listen in. It's listening to voices, listen to inspiration, wherever they come from as well. I think that's what's brilliant. And there's something about your storytelling that is so, I don't know, it's just so brave and brilliant and entertaining and funny. And how do you make people have sympathy for the devil? That was a question I had for you. Oh, God, because I have sympathy for the devil. And in a way, I think we are all the devil. <laughs> the, the horror that I, that I have is that none of us really know what the worst thing about us is, you know? Mm. We all think we know the thing that's awful. <laughs> I think we're all, we all have to live kind of as humans, given that, we're, that our lives are like finite. Um, this is fun. <laughs> but I mean, I think we have to live in a certain amount of denial to survive. Yeah. And part of that is being in denial about who we really are. And so a lot of the things I like to think about, and it's certainly in this film and in, and then Promising a Woman too, is sort of what are the things about ourselves that are troubling, yeah. that cause us shame, and how do we process that? How do we deal with them? How do we confront them? Yeah. I suppose, yeah. The tone of this film as well is, is, is spectacular in the sense that in, the, in a breath you can have us proper belly laughing and then literally our hearts in our hand then at the, by the end of that sentence. In terms of when you write and things like that, how do you form that or how do you find that tone whilst you're writing? I guess it's an, just a natural inability to talk about things seriously. <laughs> and I don't know if that's maybe a very British thing, but I have, you know, I'm a funeral giggles person. I can't help it. It's not because I'm pure evil. It's just because I don't know how else to Sad. deal with anything. Yeah. And so I think certainly when I, when, yeah, so when I want to talk about anything serious, I think I can't do it head on. You know, it has to be with humour for mm. me to actually take it seriously, I think. And, and also to make people lovable as well. I think, you know, you've got to, we, for this film to really work, we have to want to stay there. You know, yeah. we have to love the house. We have to love the family in spite of our better judgment, in spite of knowing that they're sort of callous and cruel and capricious. We still need to want them. And I think sort of the quickest way to disarm people really is humour. Mm. And that's what's so wonderful about people like this, I think, is, is disarming is absolutely the right word. It's taking people's taking people's weapons away and by seemingly having self-awareness which they all kind of appear to up to a point that's the thing that gives them license to mm. behave really horribly i will get on to music in a minute but there's so much about this film that i love and <laughs> want to talk about but your cast are delicious mm. oh my god they are so great i mean all of them not just jacob um, but he had to be for that role, you know, in terms of that's, it's a very kind of, when he opens his mouth and speaks with that kind of accent for the first time as well, you're like, oh my God, the casting's brilliant. But all of them as well. And Sadie, who plays the sister, um, Annabelle, Sadie plays Annabelle. I mean, just the, the, all these characters, they've got to work together. Where was the starting point in terms of the first person who was in there and then joining all those dots because the chemistry had to be there, the antagonism had to be there between some of them. And I guess part of that is taking a risk with who you cast and hoping that it works or seeing something in something. Definitely. I think it's sort of also about kind of who you have a connection with in yep. a weird way. 
it's sort of, especially if you make a film like this, which in some ways is kind of maybe transgressive or a bit sort of sticky, I guess, and you're kind of looking for people who are willing to go there with you, yeah. whether that, in, and that's in every department. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's conversation and sometimes it's, it's an audition. And, you know, um, Alison Oliver, who plays Venetia, the sister who is just completely sublime. This is her first film. And she was in conversations with friends. She was brilliant in conversations with friends. But this is her first film. And, you know, she just did this audition, which was just like transcendent. And you just know, you know, you know that the chemistry will be there when somebody understands something so profoundly. And it was the same with Jacob. You know, Jacob came in, he's Australian, and he came in and he did just the most extraordinarily deft bit of observational comedy by presenting Felix exactly as I'd, I'd been looking for him, which was this kind of a just a guy you know <laughs> just some guy who happens to be really really handsome <laughs> I love that I take the piss out of the way that he speaks when of course he just speaks exactly like I do really it's a it's a devastating devastating position to be in but you know but he came you know he came in and he did that and and when he came when he first came out in his costume because I'd insisted upon him having an eyebrow piercing. It was like the one thing that I, the producers were so incredible and they put up so much nonsense from me, including all of the things you see in this film. But actually for them, they were like, why would you make the most beautiful man in the world? Why would you like sully his face with an eyebrow piercing? And I literally, it was my like, it was my table flip moment. I was like, if you're telling me, if you were telling me that in 2007, if he didn't have an eyebrow piercing, that wouldn't be the talk of the town if it wouldn't be the main reason that you did anything anything and everything for him (laughs) they were like we don't get it so we had to strike a deal where he could only wear it i had to make up a line in the film where he's like you know because his mum has a phobia of stubble he also can't wear his eyebrows that i was forced that was with a gun to my head he'd have had the eyebrow piercing the whole way through if it was up to me and now of course people are rightly seeing it for what it is which is perfect but no when I first saw him I when I first saw him dressed in his clothes I was like not again get away from me never again I'm not having another feeling I'm not having this again but of course you know we all would and the same with I mean you know Richard E. Grant like what a genius the person who's you know cozy and and affable and sweet until he's not you know all of them it's that the thing that I kind of can never get out of my head which my kind of obsession with Hilary Mantel and rereading Wolf Hall which I suppose is you know the kind of perfect the perfect bit of work about being an acolyte about Mm. being you know part of a court which is totally what everyone in this is about and she has this thing you know where Cromwell's talking about being friends with the king and it like being being friends with a lion, like you're rolling around on the floor and you're tousling his mane and all the time you're thinking those claws, those claws, those claws. And that's exactly what these guys are like. You know, they don't need to show their claws very often, mm. but they're there all the time. And that's why the cast had to be so delicious, because we have to kind of forget about the claws too. Yeah. Or be willing to. When you say they're about having willing someone who's willing to kind of go there, body. Did you write this with him in mind or was he, I don't know, how did he come into the picture for this? I don't, yeah, I don't write with people in mind, I think, just because I can't really think that far ahead. You know, I first started thinking about this film probably six or seven years ago, so anyone would have probably aged out by then. But I'd seen him in Killing of a Sacred Deer, you know, obviously, and I just thought, like everyone did, like, 
who is that? Mm. Like who, what a performance. And then of course I watched everything he was in. And, you know, when it came to Oliver and casting him, it was one of those things where it seemed very straightforward, but it wasn't, you know, it needed to be somebody who kind of the more you scrutinize them, the more enigmatic they become. And that's sort of what Barry has, which is so exceptional. One of many, many talents that he has is the closer you get, the less you know, the more compelled you are. Yeah. But there are no sort of easy answers in anything that he does. And that's what I think was so important. We needed someone at the centre of this who was kind of all the things he needed to be, which was sort of vulnerable and sympathetic and duplicitous and malevolent and sexy and repellent. And he's kind of able to do all of those things. And I think really what I hope making a film is that it could kind of be a silent film. You know, you hope that you make something and it would at least be reasonably clear what was going on from, you know, the staging and the blocking and the lighting and all of that kind of stuff. And Barry is kind of an expert silent performer Mm. as well. Like his stillness and the way that he uses silence is so like unparalleled. And so for him to be the still point in this kind of very colourful, beautiful, sort of, I suppose, frivolous maybe world Mm -hmm. was, yeah, I, I just don't, I don't know that it could ever have been anyone else. I'm glad it's not a silent film because there's loads of great music in it, <laughs> thankfully. And also that just combination of the the choices of existing music, both, you know, kind of music of this this era, 2006, seven sort of time. Yeah. Weirdly, when I was probably like properly on Radio 1, which really kind of like all those songs like Cold War Kids, Mr. Brightside, all that kind of thing. I was like, God, I played that like 25 times a day on the radio. So it was real kind of like... listening to you. Oh, weird. That's so cool. That is bizarre, weird. But then also Anthony's amazing score. You know, in particular when that moment near the start of the film where he manages to kind of infiltrate the the pack in a way, Barry's character, Oliver, and that almost kind of like romantic comedy kind of cue comes in and the way then when they're back on the bridge after, you know, the ball and it's just so beautiful the way that Anthony kind of accompanies those moments are very silent movie, like almost in a way, because the music is telling us, not in a kind of overpowering way, but in a really beautiful way of kind of this love story. Where did the journey with the music start? And also absolutely brilliant choice of the opening with Zeta the Greek. That's just phenomenal, kind of like, yes! It's just like <laughs> Zeta the Priest story. It's just, it's the most brilliant kind of start to the film. You're like, oh, you kind of perk up and you're like, here we go. Thank you. I mean, thank you. That was a lot so, of questions, sorry. No, not no, even no. And it, just... But most importantly, it was a lot of compliments, which I... Really, Are you good really at taking re- compliments? I really respond to, good, actually. Okay. Good, noted. <laughs> um, addicted to praise, it's a problem. Um, so, I mean, Anthony is just a genius. He did Promising a Woman too, And the, the reason I love his work so much is that he kind of he works with themes. Mm-hmm. I like scores that have themes. I think it's kind of maybe it's a, it's a bit of an old fashioned thing now. But actually, when you're kind of playing with genre, when you you both exist in the world of the sort of gothic country house period drama, and you also very much are the kind of opposite of that, a theme is really crucial, important as a kind of skeleton to kind of keep things consistent. But, you know, the way that he does it is so surprising because, you know, the scene, as you say, on the on the bridge where they throw the stones, which is the most like swooning romantic thing. And then this kind of like grinding synth 
is the same theme. And then the bit when Farley tells him this place isn't for you and the suckling pig scene in the background is this kind of like sort of dark bit of I suppose sort of pop or kind of um, but it's actually the score again you know just sounds like music from the party thing is that you just what you're getting and it's a bit like I suppose the film in general and and the characters in it you're getting the same thing but it's different every time you're you're hearing the same thing but you don't know that you're hearing it Hmm. you know there's a kind of like it's so kind of rich and beautiful the way he works and I think when we first spoke about this Zadok the Priest was written into the script and the whole opening sequence was timed out to that. And, and you know, um, Barry had it in his ear w- while he was walking through the Radcliffe camera in oh, Oxford wow. so that he appeared under the tragic little banner with his sad, sad little tie just as, you know, God Save the King happened. Mm-hmm. And, and it just felt to me the kind of very epitome of sort of Brexit Britain, sort of tea and flag-wavingly British, you know, and so that kind of slightly over the top, slightly over the top, the sort of, um, <laughs> you know, sliding down the Radcliffe camera and seeing all of these students on their first day at Oxford University felt like such a kind of, you know, classic trope and, and so familiar. And so I'd said to Anthony, can we find a way of the, of the score being kind of a play on or sort of part of or, or you know, in some way, an answer to Zadok the priest. Yeah. And so that was kind of his starting point. And then in the very end, of course, as, as Oliver, yeah, as sort of things develop, it also the score then becomes Zadok the priest as well at the end. So it is this sort of coronation. But what is quite fun, which I don't know, spo- is it spoiler? I don't really know. You've all seen, seen it, it, obviously. <laughs> um, spoiler alert. But I think for people who haven't, who may be listening, we, we re-recorded it to make an even more over the top Right. Zadok the priest, you know, really, really kind of threw everything at it, all the symbols, all the things. And but we asked the choir the first, so the first words spoken in the present day in this film, or sung rather, on Zadok the priest, which the first line that Oliver Quick, but nobody ever notices. You know, it's that thing. It's like hiding in plain sight. It's the first thing.
to ask you about his name, Oliver Quick. How did you name him? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. They kind of feel right. Yeah. Sometimes. I mean, obviously, Oliver Quick is a little. I mean, it's all like I like things that are on the nose. People always say that like it's a bad thing. That's a good thing. It's such a sort of fetishization of subtlety in our culture. <laughs> I don't care for it. Well, you know, it doesn't, it, you know, it's lovely, but it's quite nice to be over the top. And Oliver Quick felt right. It felt sort of, I don't know, both sort of sinister and kind of banal, I guess. Yeah, maybe. yeah, yeah. You know, but all of them, they have their own like Venetia Catton, Felix Catton, Farley, Stark. They, you know, it's, I think names are like, they're so, they're so important, aren't they? Yeah. The um, first piece of contemporary music that we hear mm. is the Cheeky Girls. Have a cheeky Christmas. Have a cheeky Christmas, everyone. We should try and get it to Christmas number one. Oh my gosh. I d- actually. D- I nearly got a round of applause. Oh my God, actually. guys. <laughs> but okay, everybody like- in this room, between now for the next two weeks, just stream download the shit out of it, yeah? <laughs> stream. Honestly though, and actually, it would be just because it is an absolutely brilliant Christmas song. Like truly, it's a brilliant Christmas song. And the reason that we chose, it was really, it was a really difficult one that because what we realized early on is that is that Christmas songs are perennial. So it's very hard to find a song that you even know, you know, if you're trying to say kind of, you know, Christmas 2006, trying to think of something that's actually set in that time mm. isn't that clear. You know, we were thinking of kind of Christmas time in brackets, don't so let like the, the bells, bells end, end. The, darkness, um, yeah. the darkness, but that's a little bit earlier. And again, it's not, it sort of sounds 70s. So yeah. is that that was out. And then we tried to get Crazy Frog, as I've said before. I'm sorry to say that something's happened to the frog. We cannot get hold of him. No. I know. But you can see it, right? Yeah. Like you hear that, yeah. you hear like he's, he's not contactable and you're like, of course he's not. Like, what is he doing? It's he's better. not real? Well, oh, look, he's, but he must be because we needed to get the, we needed to get hold of him and he wasn't there. So I don't know what to tell you. Like, yes, I know he's not real. Edith. Thank you. So now it's going to be my, my oh life's my mission to find out who represents the crazy frog and present you with a contact. My new boyfriend, <laughs> crazy, crazy frog. frog. Um, it's the showman. <laughs> this press tour was desperate for um so we couldn't get hold of the crazy frog or his creator if you're going to be very pedantic about it and, um and so we, we just couldn't think and then for ages and then suddenly it was like sometimes you think like this is it's worth all of the strife of making a film and the kind of difficulty and the not seeing your children and crying in the bath it's all worth it because sometimes you think oh my god the cheeky girls had a christmas song and then you listen to it and it's the best song. It's the best song ever. And you get to have it in your film. And that people, most people, you know, in America, you know, amazingly wasn't a huge hit over there. And so they don't know. But when you watch it in England and you first hear those cheeky girls, like it's just a moment of your, like pure pleasure. Like yeah. that's the thing for me that is just a joy of a soundtrack. I love it.
I also love how musically bringing in bands of that time into the script, like Rosamund's delivery, Rosamund's delivery of the pulp little moment of common people is just <laughs> one of the most brilliant little it's so so great how much like for that scene in particular with Rosamund how much how much is on the script and how much is she bring into that oh my god well I mean honestly <laughs> it's sort of it's a combination really for most of the time I try to make sure that the script is quite sacrosanct but when it comes to the sort of comedy moments, when it comes to certainly getting in and out of scenes, mm-hmm. it's so fun to like let people. I think what Rosmond, what happened with Rosmond is that we were talking about her character. So we talked about her character a lot in rehearsal and about, you know, the fact that she was a model in London and she'd done sort of quite well, but not as well as she could have done. And is very resentful of all of the other people who had done well, who'd maybe slept with some photop- you know, photographers. Yeah. But there's a very kind of complicated backstory yeah. to Elspeth. And one of them was... She is always alluding to the fact that it's mortifying that Jarvis Cocker probably wrote Common People about her. And I was just like, it's got to go in. It's just got to, got to go in. And she's, you know, I mean, the delivery, what did she say? Um, she came from Greece. She had a thirst for knowledge. It couldn't have been me. I've never wanted to know anything. <laughs> she's just, I mean, it's honestly, brilliant. she's so, she's such a genius. It's mad how much of a genius she is. It's so great. We've got to talk about the end scene, if that's okay, with, mm. with Barry. I mean, now forever, whenever I hear murder on the dance floor, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but all I'm going to see is Barry's bum. But his brilliant interpretation. There are some fantastic examples in cinematic history of great closing scenes that involve music, a popular track and dancing. Le Beau Travail, for me, is just one of the most amazing end scenes to a film. It tells you so much about a character. It's like a short film at the end of the film. This is, I think, up there for me with that in terms of what his delivery, expressive dance is telling us. And it's so beautiful. It's bally. It's poetic. What was the journey to capturing that and also building that trust with Barry to film that? So I think, you know, there was always going to be this inverse of Felix's tour, you know, at the end of the film, the film would be kind of bookended um, by these two sort of tours of the house, I guess. And it was originally just going to be a walk, a kind of, you know, spoiler alert, naked walk. And kind of about halfway through filming, it just felt like it wasn't going to be as kind of, it needed to feel very jubilant and sort of deranged but poignant and sort of solitary but it just needed to have all of the things I think has it it mostly also needed us if we weren't you know if we didn't have sympathy for the devil before it then it would be impossible not to feel it by the end you know that you're kind of you can't help but love it you know and that's that's always the kind of tricky tricky thing and so you know I spoke to Barry about it and I think the thing is with with trust yeah it's just it's a constantly ongoing conversation. We had an amazing intimacy coordinator, but also I think it's partly that we all knew the kind of film we wanted to make, mm. which was something complicated and, you know, in some ways exposing, I suppose, for, for in various ways. But Barry is such an interesting performer because, yeah, there are, there are certain certain things that he just doesn't have, you know, he's just completely comfortable. If he feels, if he connects to it, then there's never a question, you know? And so that was one of these moments where I sort of suggested it to him and he was like, yeah, because it felt right. It felt as right to him yeah. as it felt to me. And I would never, ever, you know, I would, I would never want to like coerce somebody into doing 
something like this it would it would only it only ever works if it's felt from them too and so that was really wonderful and then we just got yeah we got an amazing um choreographer who I'd worked with before um called Polly Bennett she's amazing yeah she's amazing she's incredible she does lots of movement as well as dance so she does the crown and she did um Austin for Elvis exactly Austin for Elvis and Bohemian Rhapsody all of that kind of stuff she's just really an exceptionally fascinating brilliant person and it's a difficult one that scene because obviously the dance needs to feel spontaneous enough that it's kind of a little joyful evil jig basically but also you dance not that I dance naked a lot Mm. but you do dance differently or you move differently when you're naked than you do when you're fully clothed when you're naked and when you're alone right yeah famously dance like nobody's watching (laughs) as as it's written on my office door (laughs) it's not (laughs) can you imagine hang in there baby all my my tattoos I just like to get 90s motivational posters, actually. It makes me feel seen. Um, but no, totally. It's all of that stuff. It's how do you make, and that's the whole thing about this movie, and particularly the scenes that are, you know, uh, require nudity or like intimate or kind of sex scenes, is they need to feel like something you would only do on your own. They need to be credibly, I don't know, intimate. And that's what Barry is so amazing at. And so, but so, yeah, so Polly, so what we did was kind of Polly used Barry's boxer. And so she used a lot of like boxing footwork. And rather than have a very specific dance, like routine, mm-hmm. it was more about kind of, there were specific moments and moves that would kind of be, because obviously we needed to do lots of kind of technical camera and lighting and all of that kind of stuff. So, and it was just, yeah, they're kind of, it's that moment that I kind of always said to Polly that I really wanted it to feel like he was just going to walk. And then suddenly you realize you're in a dance routine and you're like, oh yeah, okay. And, you know, he needed to snort coke and blow a kiss at Felix's picture and then, you know, end with the stones though, you know, on his own. Did you have that track already? We had to, because we had to, we had to, um, it had to be in every room. So we didn't have a lag. Yeah. And so he had to be able to dance to it. So no, so luckily for him. Yeah. It was loud in the room. It wasn't that awful thing you often get in film when somebody's doing something with an earpiece, just <laughs> in grave silence. The own, your own silent disco, naked. <laughs> well, like, yeah, bleak. You know, even though it was a closed set, yeah. it was only me watching. Even I would have lost a little respect, I think. Um, but no, it's just like Carrie and Bo having, having to sort of dance and sing to start a blind in silence. <laughs> It's one of my favourite things ever because it was just in an earpiece. Look how much joy you do. Lovely. I loved it. You know, I'm not above tormenting people for fun. He totally commits to it. It's just, it's just gorgeous, gorgeous to watch. He's amazing. He's amazing and he's not, you know, and he's... But I think also it's everyone, mm. everyone who made the film. You know, it was unbelievably tricky to light, you know, to light a shot like that and not see any of the kit and not see any reflections of crew and, you know, and to make sure that the, you know, the atmos in the kind of final great hall room was exact settled just the right amount so that the mm. light catches it so that he's silhouetted as he walks in. Through. You know, it's just the tiny, it's everything, you know, the the amazing art department who made the cat and players box. And it's, it's every single person who worked on that film, just the kind of commitment, the relentless commitment to making something special and different and personal, Mm. you know, that's why it was also so thrilling. It was just everyone's work, you know, 
all in one. And yeah. Barry, yeah, I mean, Barry more than anyone. Did you write that song in the script or did you go through a, a journey to kind of find what was the right... It, I think it was that when I realised it had to be a dance, mm-hmm. I realised it had to be a dance to Murder on the Dance Floor. I, I don't think... that. I think the two things came together, yeah. you know? Yeah. As they often do. It's a sort of like, oh, it has to be that. That's the only thing it could be. It's murder on the dance floor. You better not kill the groom. DJ, gonna burn this goddamn house right down. Four, three, two, one. Oh, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. About your. Did Sophia the Spectre take much persuasion? No, she's such a legend. I think, I, well, also I'm really careful because you have to write a brief. You have to write a brief for people, obviously, in order to get them to sign their music over. And so, for example, you know, you, you have to ask a choir to sign off on, you know, the, the funeral scene, mm. we could call it. Yeah, you know, that leads into other... Yeah, so you have to write that oh, kind wow. of brief. To the choir master. <laughs> you kind of make it smaller as you go down. Yes, it is. <laughs> That's the end. Um, He's by a grave. And, <laughs> and it's grieving. Stop Normal grieving. It. Totally straightforward. <laughs> um, and so... Oh, wow. But I... You all also always have to be kind of scrupulously honest when it comes to that kind of stuff. Again, because you're not trying to trick people, but also like it's just... It would be too awful for Sophie Ellis Bexter to have seen it and said, I hate it. Yeah. Take my song off it so we had we had described the scene and I, and apparently she sort of said oh my god definitely you know definitely <laughs> yeah. and luckily she you know she really liked it but it's just I mean it's just such a great song and it has exactly it has all the things you want it's you know it's jubilant and genuinely joyful and fun and catchy and camp mm. you know it's kind of it lives in a world of sort of self-aware camp that I think is sort of kind of has to this film obviously also lives in a kind of yeah similar world also that choice of karaoke song oh flow rider well rent oh but i mean both let's do both oh my god can you imagine if i like cracked out (laughs) flow rider (laughs) oh my god i mean i wish (laughs) i could Um, that's a really the the petra boys track mm. is such a great it's telling the story. It's so, so clever that there there is a song that exists. You know, it's 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 a mirror. I think certainly that scene was one of the f- earlier scenes. I think when I was thinking about Saltburn, because usually it's not chronological. It's kind of you know different little islands and then <laughs> things kind of gather towards them. And Rent, I just think Rent is just a perfect love song. And I think it's you know, and it's just completely perfect because it's. I mean, it's the greatest, most honest love lyric of all time. I love you, you pay my rent. 
And I genuinely think it's genius because why is that less touching or why should it be less touching than I love you, you're beautiful? Yeah. Or I love you, you're clever. Or I love you, you don't know you're beautiful. Whatever it is, whatever it is that we used to. I love you, you pay my rent has such clarity and purpose. And is just a legitimate, as just as a legitimate reason to love someone, I think. Yeah. You know, if we're being honest. And so. Um, well, that's the thing about it is not enough people would be honest to say that in terms of that that's actually the lyric they would choose. Well. But I, th- well, I think that's what's great about it. Perhaps. I mean, I think, I think that though, yes, it's, it needed to be a song. So I knew I loved that song and I wanted that song to be in there, but also I knew it was being used, yeah, by Farley to, to humiliate to humiliate Oliver for overstepping the line and for getting his feet a bit too, you know, far under the table. And I think that, you know, almost as important as that thing, it's, 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 the, it's the audience and the family realising what's happening kind of just before Oliver does, which is so painful. And then Oliver's, you know, this is your song as well, Farley, come finish it. But the way that Farley sings it is totally comfortable. Yeah. He doesn't mind. Yeah. Because he's been playing the game so much longer that he's had to take a certain amount of ownership of mm. it, of that sort of acolyte status. You dress me up, I'm your puppet. You buy me things, I love it. You bring me food, I need it. You give me love, I feed it. And look at the two of us in sympathy with everything we see. I never want that stuff I mean that's why that's why music is so powerful and so important and why it has to be used so judiciously because you know if you do too much of that it kind of does lose its power and I and I'm very conscious always with with my films particularly because music's such a big part of them I make sure every time we do a you know when when me and Victoria the amazing editor do an assembly you really the first five or six times we see the film as a whole there's no music at all including temp score oh, wow. because I really really want to know in my head in my heart that it can stand on its own two feet without the pet shop boys without the cheeky girls without you know and I and I mean it because it you know like everything you need it all to work together you can't you know you've, you've got to be careful to you know one thing too many yeah and it sort of becomes relentless and so there was a lot of you know there's a lot of stripping out actually of songs I mean R.I.P. The Kooks had to go quite early on in one of the scenes. I know, I know, devastating. I know, she knows that one. You're not, not fun asking. I always um, got the words wrong for that one. So I actually don't know. I don't, I think I'm not fun of asking. I know that she knows I'm not fond of asking, but oh. I thought it was, I know that she knows I'm not from Nebraska. I thought it was, I'm not from Nebraska. Did she? I mean, for, for ages. Whilst I was on the radio, I thought that. Actually, it was, you're so naive. And it was Felix listening to it. Guys. Lyric, <laughs> but but so um, but you know that kind of it kind of had to go and and it's um, yeah it's always painful the kind of number of like brilliant things yeah. that can't make it but yeah you sort of um, it gets tiring too many times and it's why it was really fun using Mr Brightside as we do which was for three seconds that and you don't hear the the killers sing it at all you just hear the boys sing it really badly from afar and then it's out and it's the most expensive cue in the whole film and the producers were like if we're gonna spend the money on the killers could we 
could we possibly use it a little bit more prominently? And I was like, but the thing is, is it existed in the world. You were playing it on the radio all the time. You know, Mm -hmm. it wasn't that these things are there. You can't deny that that song wasn't just like, you know, it was already, I think two, it had already been two years by the time it had been out. And it was, it was just a kind of part Mm -hmm. of the fabric of life. And so you have to have it there. You have to acknowledge it, I guess, but you, but it's also fun to just, you know, withhold it up to a point. karaoke song of choice okay now now it's, it's golden eye oh the bond song shirley bassey it's not shirley bassey no it's tina, tina turner. turner it's golden eye and i gotta tell you it's really wow it's poignant that's you go on I take, i'll take you on a journey no it's really bad i'm not very good at but karaoke. that's the whole point of karaoke i don't i i used to do think twice by celine dion and then i did it in america where it was not a single and nobody has heard it, and it's very hard to sing. And I had to sit in a room full of people I didn't know who sat in polite silence while I struggled through Think Twice, and it ruined the song for me completely, and actually karaoke. So I, I don't, I kind of had to retire. It was one of the great joys of my life doing karaoke, and now I just. Oh, it's, I thought, um, surely this experience has brought it back. Actually, this was a pleasure because Josh Maguire, who sang Flo Rider, who sang Low, learnt it completely word perfectly <laughs> and I have got on my phone the entire choreography of the whole song which he did a thousand times that day on the hottest day of the year in front of that fire in black tie <laughs> and it was so devastating because of course there were moments where he had to kind of out of necessity do a key change because it got too high or too low he got out of breath and had to just have a little rest there was a moment where he got kind of entangled up in the in the cord the mic cord and came a cropper like it was so it was so brilliant and it and it pains me again the things that you just can't use because you actually have to get on with the business of like the meat and potatoes of the plot but really what you're thinking is i could just watch josh mcguire <laughs> You know, go to town on Flowrider with Lolly Adafope looking at him with like sheer loathing. <laughs> Can we have that as extras, please? Oh, Whenever God. we get extras, those days. two, the cut, their, their <laughs> stuff is just. And him desperately saying, "Did you did you like it, darling?" He sat down and said, "What did you think? Did you think it was good?" And she said, "No." And it was just everything. <laughs> it's like I just want to follow them home and be in their car. that Richard says as well about, about the, the words coming up on the screen. The words are on the screen, Oliver. That's the best bit. That's the best bit. 
know. As a child. Yeah. Um, we've got a little bit of time just for a few uh, questions from our audience, if that's okay. Um, we're going to come here with a microphone, if that's okay. And then got a young lady there as well. There are so many nautical strikes you can, you in can, here. It's so Okay, great. we're going to start with Lauren. You've got a microphone? Go for it. We were having a real giggle saying how fun it looked to film and how that the tennis scene when the, when mm. they all arrived at Saltburn mm-hmm. and the four of them really get going. How much of that was written and how much did you let the cast go to town on improvising or was there much improvising or was it quite heavily sticking to script i mean the first thing is it's a, it's an absolute it's drudgery to make something look fun <laughs> that's the first thing i realized is actually it's so easy to kind of get lost in the moment and it for be to be fun sort of on the day and not fun yeah on film so so sadly i was the kind of boring headmistress always like not having a fun time trying to like wrangle everyone but it's mostly not improvised just because well, there there are definitely it coming in to scenes and out of scenes. There are definitely moments of improvisation. I like to kind of, you know, for people to sort of start to feel comfortable and get into character before the kind of scene happens. But when it comes to like champagne tennis, which is apparently a real game. Oh, I want to uh, play. It's, I mean, it sounds like terrifying. It's because it's you, it's something like every time you lose a point, you have a sip and a game, you have a, a glass and a match, you have a, bottle so like i can't begin to imagine how bad the alcohol poisoning would be by the end of it but in that scene yes i i was sort of what i would do is something like that if it was a montage scene it was sort of more like that it would be like venetia can't play tennis so she's really resentful farley's really good because he's learned in the hamptons you know um felix is a child and is absolutely furious every time he doesn't get a point even though it's supposed to be fun he actually gets really upset and throws a strop and you know and and oliver doesn't know how to play so it's sort of it's sort of giving people enough that they can kind of have that to go with so it's sort of a combination but generally speaking it's yeah it, it you want it to be fairly tight on the script otherwise things just um they lose tension, mm. I think, in scenes, definitely. Did you have a question? Okay, go. And then you can pass on here. Hi. First of all, thank you so much. I love the film. It's like one of my favorite films. I brought like 10 people with me. Oh, <laughs> yes, oh, team. Wow. Like, I don't know what they think. Thank you. It being my second time, I saw so many things that I didn't see the first time around. And like, I just want to know, how do you come up with those things? Like, for example, when Venetia's talking about the doppelganger, is it true that in the background there's like Felix's doppelganger walking by? Or like, am I making this up? There's a dude walking in the same shirt. Like, just like, how do you think of things like that? Like, like, is it on paper? Is it in a script? Do you, is it during production? Do people go, oh, that'd be really cool? Um, and then I have one second question. It's about the aspect ratio. Mm-hmm. Did you always want to do it like this? Or did it start off wide? <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for bringing so many people. Um... No, I mean, I mean that ticket, ticket sales are a very important part of this industry, I'm learning. Um, <laughs> so thank you. Absolutely. I mean, again, spoiler alert for people listening to the, the yes. So Felix does walk behind himself um, when she's talking about the doppelganger walking past him in the, behind, you know, Shelley's doppelganger in the window. And, you know, absolutely. I think the, the wonderful thing is, is it's the detail is what is interesting. You know, you have to make, when you're a director, you have to make decisions every, not just every day, but, you know, in the writing and then in prep, you know, prep's one of the most important things because what you're doing is you're, you know, people have to, for example, people have to get dressed. Characters have to have costumes. 
they need to pick up a glass of water. So all of those things, there are some people who, you know, maybe are interested in what kind of glass or, or, you know, but for me, it's like, okay, well, if there has to be a glass of water in the scene, what type of glass is it? You know, because if somebody's drinking water out of an old, you know, filthy old mug, that tells you something about them. If their glass is incredibly grubby with fingerprints and has hundreds of lipstick marks around it, that tells you something. You know, if it's a perfect little, you know, bougie cut glass crystal, that tells you something else. It's like everything is a decision, you know, every the texture of every bit of fabric in there reflect light a different way. Everything in our lives is like clutter. It's debris. There's so much about what me and Linus, you know, the amazing cinematographer, we, we talked a lot about Caravaggio and all these paintings, which, you know, sort of feeds into the aspect ratio of it. But it's, but it's always about if you're making something that looks beautiful, that is about beauty and our fetishization of beauty and our relationship with it. What we always wanted to do was say, the karaoke scene is a good example. It's sort of lit. It's the most formally composed scene. And it's sort of lit like a sort of Caravaggio and, and the, and the, and the sitters are sitting like they're in a kind of Gainsborough portrait, but it's lit by a karaoke machine. And, you know, then there's a, then there's the scene where we push through the window to reveal Oliver smoking. And in that push through, it's kind of this, you know, that we have these red curtains and it's kind of a still life, essentially what we created that we push through. So it's, it, there's all this kind of, the kind of two figures of Felix and Annabelle are kind of framed by this, yeah, this kind of still life, which looks like beautiful, I don't, you know, in a painting would be like pewter goblets and grapes and whatever it is. But when you look closer, it's Red Bull cans and Pringles packets and old condom wrappers. And it's, and so it's that thing always of like, it looks beautiful, but it's all debris, really. It's all shit. It's all just part of the stuff of our lives. And that's, like the fun of making a film is that you can be precise as every single, everything from an eyeliner choice to the fact that, you know, I want eyeliner to clot into the, you know, to the kind of tear ducts like it does when you're drunk and a girl or so often it's little things like costume will always steam people's clothes. But like someone like Felix wouldn't have steamed clothes. He'd always be like studiously rumpled. So it's about kind of rumpling everything. You know, it's, it's like, well, you can probably tell it's just a relentless pursuit of Every bit of detail, everything has to be on there. Everything has to be on film and therefore everything has to earn its place and it has to be justified and it has to be joyful. And so every frame needs to, yes, be subject to scrutiny and have its own kind of pleasures and details. And when it came to 133, all of those things, again, are decisions that require like a lot of conversations, a lot of back and forth. I think me and Linus went to the house. It became apparent really early on that, you know, the house itself is is sort of tall and the rooms are very high and, and quite square. And then, you know, Jacob and Archie are six foot five, which means just bl- from a blocking point of view, you don't want to be cutting off anyone's head by kind <laughs> of shooting anamorphic. So bit by bit, you start to kind of narrow down your options. And then, you know, we start to look at the maze and the cat and theatre and, and the, the fact that this is a sort of film about looking, looking in, peeping in. The kind of close-ups we wanted to have, which was super, super, super close so that you could see the kind of detail of pores and taste buds and teeth and, you know, that they felt intimate and particular. And, you know, all of those things meant that that was the best aspect ratio for this film. And you don't have an enormous number of aspect ratios to choose from, actually, anyway. It's interesting. It's kind of, um, it's just that this one seems to have slightly fallen out of fashion. Maybe people think it's sort of arch or contrived um, for that reason. But it's, but actually, it's really, it's an incredibly fun format to work mm-hmm. with. And it makes, and it makes um, comp- composition much, much easier. 
But again, with the next one, I've no idea what the aspect ratio will be because I don't know quite what I'm going to be, who I'm going to be dealing with, how tall they're going to be, what the set's going to be. I mean, they'll be very, I mean, Bo Burnham was six foot seven. So clearly there's some, something troubling going on there. Six foot three. The next one will be, are there any giant, who's the tallest man in the world? He'll be 10 foot tall. That can act. Can he act? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And um, last question from you, please, sir. This feels slightly pedestrian after the film we just watched. As someone who straddles both acting and filmmaking, have you ever been tempted to put yourself in a bit more of a prominent role in one of your films? Well, I, I hope you're you're not referring to my integral role in Promising Young Woman as Blowjob Lips Tutorial Girl. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all know that that was snubbed at the awards that, that season. I think that people who can do that are incredible. I am much too vain to ever consider doing that myself because I know that the film I would make would be me in slow motion with a wind machine, <laughs> a huge amount of CGI on the de-aging. Singing Celine Dion. It would just be, yeah, I'd just be on like lying on a sateen chaise long looking like Marilyn Monroe. I mean, that would be the whole film, basically. So I, I don't know how... I wouldn't know how to direct other actors inside a scene. I also... And I don't say this to be kind of fishing for compliments. I don't think I'm good enough to cast myself. I wouldn't make the audition. <laughs> because now I've worked with, you know, Carrie and Rosmond and, and Barry and everyone I've worked with, they're so good. And it's such a pleasure to work with them that it's, you know, I'm very happy not to be doing that myself. We haven't even mentioned poor dear Pamela. Oh, poor dear Pamela. She's so... What a little performance that is. Oh my gosh. Well, but also the thing is about Carrie and why she's so (laughs) perfect. Well, also I would never have dreamed of asking her to do something that's only three scenes, but I sent her the script and she just called me and said, can I be poor dear Pamela? (laughs) And I was like, we need to get you a a Gareth Pugh snood. And she was like, yes. Um, but, but the thing about poor dear Pamela again is that she could so easily just be an object of derision because we've got this really weird relationship. I think all of us with like the, the idea of like the fashion victim, right? Like it's somebody that that's like an object of kind of derision. But I, I, I truly believe that those people and usually women, so it is kind of inherently misogynistic. The people who make themselves works of art are really deeply talented artists to show up to breakfast like poor dear Pamela does to look like that every day is a G is a, is a must you know she she's a masterpiece mm. and the thing about her that's so important is that she's she's extremely vulnerable we you know we find out later just how vulnerable and she knows she's outstayed her welcome and she's got nowhere to go so she has to suffer their scorn nightly and you know somebody less somebody kind of less of a genius than Carrie wouldn't have grasped that, wouldn't have made Mm. us feel so much for her because yes, it's very funny and their cruelty is sort of delightful until it's sort of not, until you see it really. And that's why someone like Carrie is so special is that yes, it's a comic, I mean, it's a, it's a comic masterpiece, that performance is, but it's also so poignant Mm. and so real. I could talk to you all night. Um, I've, uh, it's just so great to get the chance to to talk to you about this film. Please make lots more. Um, I'm so excited for what, what the next project is and how tall 
the leading man. <laughs> He's three children on top of each other in a coat. <laughs> but also just to hear how, how important music is to your storytelling and thank you for sharing that with us. Um, thank you all for being here for this first um, Soundtrack and Film Club and allowing us to to for your film to be our first film. Thank oh you. Oh my God, and thank you for having me because this is like the most exciting thing that's ever happened in my life because I love you <laughs> and I love this. Oh, thank Podcast. you. The wonderful so Emerald you. for now, ladies and gentlemen. From Anthony Willis's score to Saltburn, that's You're So Real, which brings us neatly onto none other than Anthony Willis, who scored Emerald's film. And I was lucky enough to catch up with them separately. Shall we play another of his cues? All of which you can hear via our good friends at Milan Records, who have released the score. So why not? They are wonderful. great to get you on and and we had that crazy Q&A about when was that I was like like five weeks ago I want to say wow something like that it's been a blur the last month has been really fun we were really lucky actually because um on Friday we managed to get a preview of the film um and show it uh, as our first soundtrack in Everyman Film Club and Emerald came after and we did a, a really really funny brilliant uh, in conversation after the film it was really great actually because you know those q a's that i i love doing but they are certain the audience is a certain type you know they're in the industry there's a very different atmosphere i think anyway when you do it in a room full of film fans genuine you know that aren't part of the industry that are they come at it with a slightly different angle or interest or you know whatever and so the energy was amazing in the room uh and then oh. emerald just fed off that you know afterwards it was just glorious it was delicious yeah yeah you're you're so right like it's ever so slightly stiff in with with industry people just because you know everyone's yeah, yeah it's just a different yeah. vibe about two weeks ago i was in it's like where in the world is emerald right now <laughs> <'Cause>... <laughs> 
Not that I'm stalking her. She's in New, I York. Think she's in she's New York. York on her way to LA, I believe. Yeah. She is. Yeah, she is. <laughs> but uh, she was in Savannah two weeks ago. And I, I was there too because I was, I was very lucky to be um, honored with an artisan award. And so I went out there. And so I went to her screening there. Yeah. And the kids at SCAD, who organized the festival, went absolutely mad. And um, Clayton Davis from Variety was moderating the panel with Emerald, but we'd all had dinner before because he knew I was in the audience. And he was like, oh, and we've got a troublemaker in the audience. <laughs> and he might have, honestly, he might have, he might as well have said like squash banana. And they still would have just gone like, yes. <laughs> and then I came back to LA and did like a, like a smaller one. I can't remember what it was, a smaller screening. And it was just yeah. <laughs> very like soberingly low energy. And I was like, oh. yeah. Back to reality. <laughs> yeah. That, that frenzy is like amazing. I've seen it three times. It's like the gift that keeps on giving Saltburn because every time you see it, I mean, it's so rich with storytelling um, that I think almost every time you see it, you, you get more and you see more and discover more, you feel more, you hear more. Yeah, I encourage people to see it multiple times just to kind of... um. Yeah, it's like going back for seconds and thirds at the best dinner party ever. Yeah, or the worst lunch ever. <laughs> how like did it, before we get into it, though, how did you, because obviously Promising Young Women, uh, women you worked on with Emerald prior to this. Again, mm-hmm. congratulations on that. But how did you guys meet? How did this kind of collaboration between the two of you start? I knew Emerald through some, through some friends when she was living in LA, but, you know, not... Not well, but I think she was aware of what I was doing. And she knew that I'd worked like a lot in kind of more classic film scores with themes. When she was looking for a composer of Promising Young Women, she, I, I ran into her at a, at a friend's barbecue and she said, you know, I'd love just, I wanted to talk to you about my film. And my immediate reaction was, well, I'm probably not the right person for this, but let me help you. Like I would any friend, anyone I knew, like who needs connecting with somebody. So I connected her to my agent. And, you know, I said, who, who can you, you know, who can you help Emerald out with? And I, I think, you know, she went around the houses looking for lots of people, but she also very sweetly asked me to write something. And I think, I think in the back of our mind, she just wanted, it was like an exercise in what would somebody like Anthony do with this film? And yeah. like, let's see if we can learn something from that. And that's just how it started. It was like, what, what would that be? And, and my whole mission was like, if I can help her just learn something about the film, whether I'm on the film or not, like wonderful job done and I wrote a theme for Nina who is um Karen Mulligan's friend who's not in the film yeah but but you know Emerald wanted and the studio really wanted to feel that presence and that was and then she she really liked it and and then that was it
you know, and then obviously with Saltburn, she, I think, you know, she had even more ambition for the score. And I think it is a score that people will, it's more, it's more present perhaps than the promising one. There's more, I mean, there's some nice oh, moments great. in Promising too, but there's a, you know, it's like, and the sound team did an awesome job really featuring the score and, and, and Emerald too, like very much leading that. I want to know how she described Saltburn to you when she sort of, when you had that first conversation about it. What did she, what was her kind of like pitch to you about what the film was going to be? Or did she just send you a script? You sent me the script. Yeah. Am I allowed to say spoilers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably Obviously, not, right? it's, this is going out the, the Monday after release and we'll, we'll put in the episode as well that there's spoilers. Yeah. Cool. So she sent me the script and <laughs> it, it was one of those things where you knew you were going to get sent the script and then it doesn't come. And then you follow up with someone because you're like, because everything else in your life when you're dealing with an Emerald script is just like, completely irrelevant so I remember I followed up with the with lucky chap or the you know because it has to go through a whole security thing you know it's, yeah. it's a thing to send somebody a script like that and then I got it and then it's kind of like you know obviously you want to text them right away oh I'm reading it and you're like oh, God, hold on like don't annoy her too much but then obviously when it got to the bath plug I was just like you wicked <laughs> I just like yeah. oh my god and I mean the first time she'd actually told me about the movie she said she sent me such a sweet text, something like, I'm, I'm writing my next film, I'm listening to the Promised Young Woman soundtrack, can't wait to see what you're going to do. And then I think she said something like, it has to be so sexy and disgusting and gothic. And then, anyway, so I was reading the script and that, that was the first text I sent her was, oh my God, the bath plug. And then the the big reveals, I mean, I won't go into too much detail because people should, should see it, but the big yeah. reveals, like there's a few of them and those I just love. And then really the, the kind of the first musical discussions were, you know, the world of Saltburn. What, what is that? And mm. Emerald loves organ. And she's like, there's not enough scores, Anthony. There's not enough scores with organ. We need, we need organ. It's the best instrument. And that was the kind of starting point. And obviously there's a beautiful, um, beautiful, beautiful version of Lord of All Hopefulness, which I sang as a choir boy. I was a chorister in Windsor when I was um, nine years old. So I, for me, you know, this was really fun for me in a way, getting to touch just slightly on that kind of English choral music. And there's a beautiful version of Lord of Our Hopefulness in the film, During a Moment with a Grave. And actually, I'm probably allowed to say this, there was a version of the film where she put Jerusalem in. Oh, wow. But, but I think it was to really like land the kind of Brexit Britain, the Englishness of it all. Yeah. But so that was always at the, the back of the conversation was like, how can we make things feel a little bit like a hen? And then Emerald also loved the idea of the film starting with Zadok Priest. But there's that beautiful narration of Oliver at the, at the yeah. opening of the movie, you know, and that incredible photography of Jacob Elordi as Felix, and it's so nostalgic. And I think Emerald and I were both thinking, well, there's an opportunity here to do something that's more custom for our film. Mm-hmm. And actually introduced the style of the score a little bit in that more of a romantic because then then it was really about the love story like when when they sort of become friends for that first time and then the 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 bridge scene the score on that it's like it's like a julia roberts film (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's just that it's that oh it's just that you know you feel like you're so excited for the, the start of this romance kind of thing but it's so perfect but it's also so clever because it kind of almost kind of puts you into a false sense of security almost in a way in terms of where the film goes it's brilliant 
Oh, thank you. I mean, the the idea is obviously the score is a is kind of a vapor that's that's showing you what at any given moment what you're supposed to think of Oliver's experience. Like so much of it was about managing that. So this is Oliver's journey. It's Oliver's big this summer that changed his life. But we're also well, Emerald is is playing with the audience, and and really. It's all kind of laying the pipe for that final act. But yeah, I had that arpeggio that said da 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 da, and that that was really useful because it's it's classical, but it's also kind of the, that those kind of languages you use them a lot when like somebody's being calculating. Yeah, there's a kind of math to it. And then, but also, you know, you can do it really slowly, more like a pop, you know, a traditional pop kind of piano, like when they have the breakup in the maze. It's really yeah. slow and kind of heartfelt and, slight and, and sad. It was a way of being something that's subliminally there throughout Oliver's journey. And, you know, and we could put it through, you know, when he's really lonely and then it's on the organ. And then when he's, then he's um, making friends with, with Felix for the first time in that awesome pub montage. I did more of a like Emerald originally wanted a song there, but Victoria, the editor, brilliantly cut the sequence together that was much more had much more dialogue in it. So they couldn't quite use a song. Mm-hmm. They tried lots of things. And someone says, Can you do a score piece, but something that evokes the kind of music like, you know, I, I suppose it's like a slightly soft Coldplay or Radiohead kind of mash up where, where mm-hmm. it's driving through that sequence, but also the strings do their in the kind of arpeggios, but it's, it's a slightly more of a contemporary treatment to it. That was the recurring idea that that just goes through lots and lots of places.
you could have gone to town on, you know, just in terms of these fantastic characters that she's written, you know, even like those smaller parts, like like Carrie's part, you know, poor Pamela, and and it's kind of like you know they they all could almost have their all have their own suites. It could almost be a silent movie, weirdly in a way, you know, in terms of just because the performances, well, not a silent music, because the script is brilliant. They could all have their own kind of theme tunes, almost in a way, because they are so brilliantly written, brilliantly performed, sort of thing as well. I guess it's kind of like when you're starting to think about how much music you're writing for it, but also you've got to take into consideration as well, like the needle drops and then the contemporary pieces that sh- that are being used as well. But the way that it's navigated, your scores navigated throughout the film is, is just so brilliant. The way that it kind of has this relationship with both those things, but with the character and with the narrative. I mean, how did you know how much music you would need and how much you could go into all those different characters and those relationships with the music that you were writing? I think Emerald was really like, she has such an amazing sense for everything. Such, a, I mean, such a intuitive instinct for what she wants. Yeah. And there's some interesting things on this one where it's become a, a, a tradition that score kind of bleeds into the next scene mm-hmm. so you know you have a cue it's rolling away and then it starts to it starts to finish and then leak into the next scene as a way of kind of actually pushing pushing you forward a bit but it's a bit of a, a bit of a convention and so you know i did that for for a few cues and everyone was like ah, it has to be out completely for the next day and that's just it's a stylistic thing that's so interesting yeah. you know similar to the that there's so many things about this film that have a really custom style like the um the aspect ratio the photography yeah and these little things and it's subliminal but it all really adds up so emerald had a very precise instinct of where to use music i mean you know i wish i could take credit for for carrie mulligan's dinner scene but i come in right at the end just to reflect on on Oliver, Oliver sort of realizing, hang on, this family, realizing his own vulnerability at the house. Back know, to Oliver. That, yeah, it's when it's back to Oliver, exactly. But Carrie, I mean, that scene at dinner, oh. it's just the perform. I mean, Rosamond and Richard's perform. Oh. I mean, it's, I could watch that on loop and I think I'd just, I'd just be laughing my whole life. Yeah, I mean, I almost want, <laughs> I almost want a prequel. I want a, I want a Rosamond and Richard prequel. Oh my gosh, that would be so good. <laughs> That would be so good. I know, maybe they meet Pamela for the first time. Yeah. Maybe Pamela's actually, like, a little bit more, like, set at that moment. Like, maybe Pamela has a bit more leverage. Yeah, or what, like, Rosamond's, like, pregnant or, like, when she's just had a child sort of thing. It's a full house. It's just so great. In terms of linking the score into the world of, you know, 2006, Yeah. the thing that Emerald really liked about that kind of music is the, is the tendency for like um, those kind of back pulsing synths that where the filter opens on the synth and it throbs. And in a lot of the party, those awesome, you know, the awesome track, Perfect Exceeder and Loneliness, you know, really have that. So she's like, how can we, how can we take that and sort of distill it into the score in it, but still in the language of our score? And what the house rem- always reminded me of, and you know, when Oliver's walking along the creaky floor to the bathroom, is that like even when you're in a big house like that, if someone's playing like music really loud, like downstairs, it's obviously muffled, but it, you can still kind of hear it and you can mm-hmm. feel the afterglow of like the night's over. 
Oliver's upstairs and like he's you know he's followed Felix up there but downstairs maybe like people are still enjoying themselves and so it's this idea of like the afterglow of a party kind of leaking through the floorboards so we took the idea of of, of a throb but instead of doing it with a synth there is a bit of synth that, that supplements it too to kind of get it a little more filthy but the primary color you hear is actually an organ because we using organ for saltburn like the saltburn arrival in a very kind of gothic mm -hmm. um, i think everyone was like let's make it like jurassic park like batman it's a very gothic kind of big rich sound and you know organ plus strings is a hell of a noise and so it's you know i really like the idea of threading that color and actually and we recorded it at temple church in london which was really really great to do and actually a real privilege to get in there because it's they're not necessarily just like, yes, we can't wait to get films to record. They very much have their own, you know, their own thing. They have concerts there. They have important worship is there that, and all that stuff. Is so, that not where Hans did Interstellar? It is. This is a very same. Yes. Yeah. Good, good knowledge. Yes. I was testing you. I was testing you. I mean, that's one of my favorite scores of all time, that score. I mean, oh, it's a big fun. fan of the organ. It's just, there's something about it. Yeah. It's like... It's just all encompassing. It's just like it, it literally just kind of hovers over you. It just you're like, okay, it's so great. Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, the way Hans uses it in that film is is brilliant. I mean, and and I think the the similarity with Interstellar is that it has such a human quality because mm -hmm. it's it's using so much wind, and that that really played well for us with this with this throb, or even like the sulfurness when with the one of the first cues in the film is when Oliver's sort of lonely at Oxford, and it's just a very plaintive sound as somebody who's sitting in this library and he's got like almost no friends and there's a there's a soulful human quality to it and then that comes back the moments in score two And then it can be huge, but then when you just do, when you just record it low, and then I put it through a dance plugin, an LFO plugin, which basically gives it that like shape. And yeah. then so as the filter opens, you hear you kind of hear the breathiness. Yeah. So it, we, it has a slightly what we like to think it has a slightly lustful lustful quality. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, so it's these things are like I think they matter. I really do. I think yeah. it matters. That it's custom 
that it's part it of the storytelling. Like, yeah. It's almost like an additional kind of not limb to the character, but kind of like almost a bit like an internalization almost in a way. You know, he's like you talk about that kind of breathy kind of lust sort of thing. And it is that kind of thing in his head of kind of, you know, his fa- almost like fantasy almost in a way. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, so it's sort of it's like coming through the full but so it's much slower. And that's used quite a few few times throughout the film and the score. And uh, yeah, it so that was that was an important thing. But it but it is it's connected to the psychology of the way that the songs are used in it. Like it's 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 sexed up and souped up, you know, like yeah. there's full there's full party tracks, and then it's sort of distilling the psychology of that down to the idea of like a guy kind of stalking somebody in the path. Yeah. So. When you were talking about him being um, lonely in the library, it just made me think of the um, Michael Garvey character. You and Mitchell, it plays him. Oh, my God. I mean, oh, yeah. Just this very small part, but God, he's so memorable. He's just like, ask me a sum. It's like, it's like, it's, yeah. it's just, he's so creepy. The way he eats the crunchy. Oh, with biting the chocolate off. It's just, it's terrifying. Oh. It's masterful, and then like the little climbing carabiner that when when he sees Oliver later, like the little cla- like you know, it's just yeah. the touches, the detail. That's I mean, Emerald's yeah. de- Emerald's sense of detail, as you said, you know, at the beginning of beginning of our chat, like how how it's such a it's such a treasure trove the film to like yeah. dive into, and you'll find there's so many details. And Promising Young Woman is similar. There's a lot of details, but I think this goes even further because it's it's a huge house so it's kind of it has all these mysteries and secrets and um, when you read the script i don't know did you write straight away or did you because the, i mean we're you know we we're talking quite a lot about performances and the casting of this in particular and you know emerald said that seeing barry and the killing of a sacred deer it was like he's the man for me sort of thing for this role sort of thing you know as much as you can um hope and dream for the performance that you're going to get out of someone until you're on set and you're playing and you're shooting it and you're trying different things and you're reacting to things as well. You don't really know. I mean, that performance is like, it's so hard to describe apart from it being just bloody amazing. But did you, did the, did you, were you privy to performances and and what they were shooting and did you react to that at all? Or, you know, what was the kind of journey of things whilst they were shooting it and stuff as well? Because it's so interesting for me when I hear, how different composers work and how, you know, it, it might be purely that they, they play off script, they, you know, they create off of being on set, they create off a, a cut, you know, it's, it's, it's so different for everyone. And also, I guess, the restraints of the film and schedule and all that kind of stuff. But what, what was the kind of the journey for you with this from that script point? I mean, the script is so evocative and so vivid. I think the thing with Emerald is that she has such a unique way of even looking at the work that she's made. You read the script and, and you fall in love with it, but then you sort of talk to her and then you go, oh my gosh, it's even more than I realized. <laughs> Just because all the pieces kind of come together. So for example, what we were going to show of Oliver and his motivations at any given moment, it might have been from the script that there was a chance to really like make him more nefarious right away mm-hmm. these things they kind of come with conversation because it's such yeah. a distinct special journey psychologically that you're taking the audience on and emerald is the as the manager of that that psychological ex- experience you know I, I also think like seeing the film for the first time finished with the performances and the characterization is such a special thing that 
you don't really get back. I think if you bring too much stuff to, for, to it before and then try and make it fit, it yeah. can it can work. It can be amazing, but also I think you you slightly blur your vision potentially. I think that I'd really like to do it more where I write loads of stuff early. I mean, one of the things I did do early was start to experiment with how we could use how we could darken Zadok as an idea and how we yeah. could make it more more subversive. So I did I did do that was one of the first things I did before before the film. Well, actually, while the film was being shot, I did do yeah. that. That was fun to do, and then I and then I came, was able to come back to it, and then. But I had no idea the way that that opening sequence was going to look. I mean, with the beautiful, the the romance of it. I didn't, I didn't know that. I, I would, you know, I wish I could return to the way that the film lived in my head from the script. But obviously, it becomes so much more vivid with the performances and the cinematography. And and then it's like kind of roll up your sleeves and go. Well, what what does the score need to accomplish within this? <laughs> Well, most of the composers I've worked with, you know, on my kind of as, as I was kind of building my career, do definitely prefer to to hold on to that ability to react yeah. to it once it's been edited. And Emerald Emerald um, Rose really invited me to see it in I think it was in December mm-hmm. last year. That was the first time I saw it. What did you think? What was your expectation? Oh I I think I think it's best not to have expert. I mean, I think it's, that's true of most movies. Yeah, like the old days of you just maybe catch the trailer and then yeah. you go and see. It. That's the best way to experience it, and definitely in a movie theater. As I mentioned, I I, I really have to applaud the um, both well everyone on my my music team who did such a great job. My assistant and orchestrator Brett Bailey, um, score mixer Nick Willage, um, and then the Pinewood sound mixers and the re-recording mix. Shrivener, who they just really embrace the score. I think there's a stigma with with scores where people go, "Oh, the the mix isn't right. No, 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 I didn't get you know. I listen to the soundtrack because, and it's like, no, no, no. I wish the soundtrack represented. The, you can't get the experience from listening to the soundtrack that you can of going to the movie and seeing it in a theater. It's there's just no way. It's a yeah. it's a totally different thing. They really represented me well, and it was mixed at Pinewood and just outside London. They really embraced it and really did a lovely job. So I'm so grateful for them.
before I run out of time, two things I wanted to just talk about, which was you were talking there about um, Zadok the priest. You re-recorded that, didn't you? And you sort of played with it, and there was a slight manipulation with a few things with it. Or did I get that wrong? Did no, no, that's right. So the the front is is completely is completely different. It's not technically uh, part of the original score in terms of the way it's been submitted and, and all that. The, the score is its own thing, but but it was a it, it was kind of the idea was like um, how Max Richter did the Four Seasons, and some of it, if you listen to his album, some of it is like verbatim the Four Seasons, and some of it is this really interesting kind of more contemporary extraction of like a style. It's it's like a stylistic, it's like it's a stylistic impression. In, in my opinion, it's really a different thing, and it but then the challenge is for it to evolve into it. I mean, you know, it uses an arpeggio, it uses the rising arpeggio basically. Yeah, that's the. The, the similarity and then it, we were trying to do something a bit like toxic where it's what i call the trojan horse where you feed something obviously zayda the priest isn't as well known as toxic but i don't know depends you, what generation you speak to depends where you are yeah <laughs> the, the idea being you start a piece of music and then people go okay oh this is nice oh what's this and then you get the sensation of like ah is this oh oh wait <laughs> Is it going to be? No, no, it's different. Oh, oh, and then you get that, <laughs> and that's that was the idea with that. But also, it all had to fit the changes in the in the scene and the dialogue, but also sound like a piece that existed anyway. And that was really it was hard to do, but really fun. And and you know, and it, it was more romantic and, and gothic, like at the starting point, like when he, you know, it starts on Emerald's name, and then he opens the lighter, and it's it's more it's more akin to that. The kind of gothic film that Emerald was really trying to parody yeah. in that opening, or, or, or I shouldn't say parody, I should say, you know, the, the yeah. satire of it. Yeah. And it, so it, it was just an opportunity to basically do have your cake and eat it. We go into Zayda once he once he actually arrives in Oxford, but the opening gives you that more broody, romantic longing that was important to establish. And I, and I think the original just didn't it didn't establish the longing. And that's the thing. It's like when he's reflecting on Felix and what he felt about him, I think that longing is so important to establish right away. That was the big, big thing with that. When you saw it for the first time with that final scene uh, with Barry, with Sophia Lispector, murder on the dance floor. I said to Emerald the other night, there's the, I love, I, I just love those scenes in films that are musically, that have, that tell you, that are such a kind of window into the character just through music and performance. So Le Beau Travail, the Claire Denis film, which is, uses um, Rhythm of the Night at, at the end. He's, it's a completely different character. 
But I just think that she's done something so brilliant with that end scene. The choice of music so great. The work that Barty's done with Polly Bennett in terms of his movement and things like that. It's just bloody brilliant. What was your reaction when you saw that for the first time? I think it does that thing that is so special and hard to achieve, which is it's given that song an entirely new meaning. (laughs) And the song, equally, the song has also given the film something. They both very much like feed off each other. Obviously, like the visual, the the way that that sequence is shot and the way that it's in reverse. Yeah, of that when when, When he's shown through and Jacob Lordy shows him the house, and it's in reverse. It's so clever in itself, and there's beautiful rooms. I'm not going to comment on Barry <laughs> myself, but I mean, he's incredible. I mean, oh. that's all I'm going to say. But the, the track is awesome, and like, and obviously lyrically, it's brilliant. It's perfect. And I know that I'm all saying actually, it was technically, it was quite hard to shoot because, not to mention all the lighting being right throughout the whole shot. Yeah, the complexity of the shot, but I also had to trigger the music for Barry to dance to. Yeah, rooms I wasn't lag. That in itself is an amazing feat. But yeah, the song is amazing. I I actually grew up, as I mentioned, I was a chorister in Windsor. Yeah, and my sisters were in a uh, in an amateur children's opera company called the W Eleven Children's Opera in West London, and Sophie Alex Baxter was the main part in all that. She kind of held the whole thing together. She was always amazing. So I always heard about her. Yeah. And I, I wanted to be in it, but I couldn't be because I was at boarding school and I had I was committed to doing all this choir stuff. Yeah. So I couldn't, like, there was no way I could tell her. My, my oldest sister, Alexandra, was doing it. And then I was like, oh, well, I'll get to do it when I'm old enough. And then it was like, and I was whisked away to boarding school, never got to do it. But it was this really fun way to make music for kids. Oh, more, And I say opera, but it was more accessible. It was more like musicals, but they were yeah. kind of like the Android Web, Weber model. They were... <laughs> sung through anyway Sophie was incredible and then suddenly like boom exploded with this huge career and um so so awesome to like see this new love this track it leaves you on such a a high the imagery is so cemented now with that music that I mean I don't think anybody who now has seen the film who then hears that piece of music is ever going to think about anything else apart from Barry dancing around naked and that's not it's not a bad thing, but I, it's kind of quite nice that, the, like you say, the song's got a different life now almost because of how it's been used. Absolutely. It's fantastic. It's yeah. so good. Anthony, thank you so much for your time. God, I can't believe that's like 40-odd minutes flown by. I really appreciate you taking time, and especially all the way over there in the States. And I'm so excited for people to actually... It's funny because I got asked to, to watch it again the other night. I did an intro, and they were like, do you want to watch it again? I was like, well, I've seen it three times. But I just want to go to the cinema with my mates and watch it with like, you know, and then come out and all talk about it. And I just think that it's yeah. like, it's got such a kind of, you know, that thing of like finding groups of people to go to the cinema with and having a great time and then coming out and going for a drink and talking about it. It's just that perfect kind of movie. And I know that you guys are going to be so busy over the next few months, you know, with um, with award stuff. And, and I just wish you all the success with it because it so deserves everything. It really, really does. Oh, thank you so much. And I, I, I like, I really agree with you. I think like the films like this right now are so important for our business in that it really is about getting out. I'm as guilty as, as of anyone. Like we, you can buy a big TV now for, yeah. you know, it's very affordable and it's nice to cook at home and it's like 
it, it's lovely, but like it's just a more special experience when you sit in a room and have that infectious laughter and everyone, I mean, there's that amazing moment was a reveal about Venetia. Yeah. And it's so clever because Emerald elected, it's the one moment in the film where I think there's absolutely no sound. And so you just hear this collective gasp. It's like, it's like, it's like somebody singing along to a track and then suddenly somebody stops the music and you actually hear something that's so human and special, which is the natural, everyone's natural voice. So that in that way, the audience really participate in the movie. Mm, absolutely. It's, it's so good. Like, yeah. And so, yeah, the, and just everyone kind of reacting together, that shared experience is such a special thing. Nothing I think, like it. Yeah. And it's so great that, you know, people have had the confidence to go back to the theatres again. Um, I was also, so, I was just learning about, sorry, I know you probably have to go, but no, no, no. I was just learning about what Taylor Swift and Beyonce are doing with the theatres. And they're they're streaming their concerts. Yeah, uh, they're not streaming. Perform and you Release go them. and it's yeah. like yeah, and it's just great for that. I feel so good for the theatre companies because they it's like yeah, like we've Absolutely. got these facilities. We want them to be nice and comfortable for people. We want to update them. We don't want them to be seedy and gross. Like we, but we need business. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm so was, uh, I'm so happy for them. Yeah, and there was another one as well. Um, the the talking heads film. Uh, stop making sense. The live. Uh, film that uh, Jonathan Demi filmed in the uh, 80s, I think it was. And that got re-released like what, a couple of weeks ago. And it was amazing, all this footage of like, by the end of it, everybody was just down at the front, in front of the screen, kind of like as if they were at the gig because of the kind of narrative of the, the state, you know, of the show, of what how they, how they built the show. And oh, if you get the chance, go and see Stop Making Sense, the Talking Heads film in a cinema if you can it is the most wonderful experience. You feel like you're watching them live and they're just, oh, it's brilliant. He comes out and he starts on his own with a little ghetto blaster, singing with the guitar, singing Psycho Killer. And then it, then more people come on stage, more of the band, and it just grows and grows and grows. And it's just, oh, it's joyous. It's so great. Oh, and it's great because like, like concerts are thriving right now. So like, but you know, not everyone can make it to them. Yeah, it's just you know why not why not enjoy it, you know, but still get the shared experience. It's yeah, so cool. Cinemas have got the best sound systems ever, so it's like you know you're like yeah yeah win win. <laughs> it's definitely win win. Yeah. Oh, Anthony, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to the hat trick as well of you and Emerald, and what you know we haven't even had a chat about Megan and stuff as well. So maybe we can have another um another sit down and chat at some point if when you're across here doing award stuff and and whatnot. Yeah, absolutely. I, it would be lovely to see you again in person. When I, yeah, hopefully, hopefully I'll get get to come back to England next okay. year. Wicked. All right. Enjoy your weekend. Thank you for your time. Thank you. This was so fun.
From the score to Saltburn, which is available through Milan Records, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Emerald Fennell and Anthony Willis. My huge thanks to Emerald and Anthony for joining me. Saltburn is on general release now and I thoroughly recommend that you go and see it. Not once, but maybe twice or three times. Every time you see this film, it kind of unveils more. It's just the gift that keeps on giving. Um, I've also got to say a massive thank you to Team Everyman, um, who've been absolutely wonderful, in particular Darcy and Amy, uh, and also to Emerald's team, uh, Laura in particular, and everybody at Warner's who helped us make it possible to show the film two weeks ahead of release and also carve out some time with Emerald for us. We really, really appreciate it. We've already recorded the next Soundtrack in Everyman Film Club. We did that last week with John Batiste for his film, uh, American Symphony. We did John, his wife, uh, Sulaika, and also the director, Matthew Heinemann, about American Symphony, which I cannot wait to share with you. But I have news of two other soundtracking film clubs that are coming up with Everyman before the end of the year. We have... Oh, this is so exciting. We are celebrating 20 years of love, actually, with a screening and a little preview event on the 30th of November at Everyman Hampstead. And we're going to be joined by Richard Curtis, hopefully a few other special guests, but we are also going to have some live music, courtesy of Nell Meskel, who's going to cover a very particular song from the film for us. So if you want to join us on the 30th of November at Everyman Hampstead for a special 20th anniversary celebration of Love Actually, then if you head to our socials, uh, there'll be details about how you can get tickets up there. And then also on the 9th of December, we have a preview screening of Priscilla. And we're very much hoping that we're going to be in the company of Sofia Coppola. Again, all details will be up on our socials, so we really hope that you can join us. If you follow us on socials, we are at Soundtracking UK. And please do get along to our YouTube channel for the likes of an exclusive whoop whoop with Tom Hiddleston talking about Loki 2. Such a treat to catch up with Tom. It's really a hugely busy time right now uh, in the best kind of way. Uh, And I've got to say a massive thank you to Ben, uh, who works tirelessly behind the scenes on making this podcast sound so awesome. Ben, I'm eternally grateful for all your work and particularly your extra work over the coming weeks. So thank you so much. But we have a bonus episode coming up for you later in the week in the shape of Todd Haynes talking May, December. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. <laughs>